0: This podcast is for investment professionals only. The coronavirus impact on China internet space actually varies.
1: ESG is definitely becoming more important for US energy companies.
2: What you're looking at is 25% of global pork production goes out of the market looking into
3: 2020 they're expecting certainly sales to fall a lot of MA with really healthy premiums like 100 premiums now it really dominates the conversation we could
4: actually find ourselves through 2020 in some kind of early expansionary phase i expect
5: headcount to go up quite considerably
6: Hello, these are just a few of the 152 analysts at Fidelity who took part in this year's Analyst Survey, which is in its 10th year. We asked them what they're learning from their research and the 15,000 company meetings that they've held over the past year. That information is distilled into a unique forecast of what they expect from their companies and sectors in 2020. It's a thorough evaluation of the corporate world. I'm Richard Edgar, and with me today to draw out some of the key findings of this year's report, we have the editor of the survey, George Watson. Deputy Head of Research for Equities, Fiona O'Neill, and Global Head of Research for Fixed Income, Marty Dropkin. Welcome to you all. Good morning, Richard. Thank you. Now, George, let's come to you. Um, You've spent the past month pouring over thousands of responses from our analysts. What makes this survey so special? Well, I think there's two things, really.
5: The first thing is the sheer amount of knowledge that gets captured in the survey. We have a vast number of analysts covering all sectors around the globe. And these are analysts who are literally with their magnifying glasses out over the financial statements. They are interviewing customers. They are surveying suppliers. And crucially, they are speaking to CEOs and senior managements, asking them what their hopes and fears are for the next year, for the next five years. And then the second thing is that we aggregate all of that and take a much bigger picture. If you like, we flip the binoculars the other way around and look at it from a very very wide angle and by doing so we can spot the trends in corporate fundamentals between
6: sectors and between regions that are really going to drive the corporate landscape over the coming year. Excellent. Now, Fiona, you're a director of equities, which means that you manage teams of these, um, these analysts, the ones who are flipping the binoculars this way, and that, as George says. So you're down in the detail every day. How useful is the aggregated picture that, um, that builds up out of this?
7: I think it's incredibly powerful. You're taking the bottom-up view You're leveraging every single analyst's individual conversations with the company management teams in the sector that they themselves are following each day. And then we're putting it all together. And what's so different is we're not relying on published data like you would typically see from top-down economists out there in the market. But we're building up an overall picture by putting together all of those individual sound bites, if you like, that the analysts gather by talking to the corporates
6: Martin, um, I mentioned this is a forecast. How accurate has the aggregated view been in previous years?
8: So I think if you look at it, it's been it's been quite prescient. Uh, if we look at the twenty eighteen title, as good as it gets. Uh, you know, as, as analysts were looking into twenty nineteen, they were looking at a cycle of earnings growth that was starting to peak, um, and that, that played out in twenty nineteen. As we looked last year at the survey with the title being "End of Optimism," um, yes, the market did perform very well, but we also looked at you know earnings really flattening out. So this year's title, "Cycle What Cycle?" We'll see, but uh, clearly it's predicting a continuation
6: of, of, of things. But without an awful lot of enthusiasm. We'll mm. come to it in a minute. Actually, let's have a look at the. Um the sentiment indicator this is the overall mood gauge of companies a corporate outlook for the year ahead George before we actually get to the number how is it compiled what's what's it made up of this sentiment gauge the sentiment indicator is an aggregate of
5: five of what we feel are the most important business metrics they are management confidence capex dividends return on capital and balance sheets and we ask the analysts what they feel the coming year will be compared to the previous year and we aggregate all of those. We normalize it on a scale of minus five, which indicates very significant contraction, to plus five, which indicates very significant expansion.
6: So what are the scores, George? Um, What was the actual sentiment
5: indicator uh, this year? And this year, the global sentiment indicator comes in at 0.2. So it indicates a very slightly expansionary environment. It was 0.4 last year. So the pace of change, the pace of expansion has dropped slightly from last year. But But it is still positive? It is still positive. And I think one of the key aspects of the survey is that managements are feeling quite cautious, but fears of recession has certainly dialled
6: down a notch from last year. So, Fiona, that pretty much sounds like good news then, doesn't it? It's qualified, but still positive.
7: Yes, I think it does seem like good news. What I would say is behind that sentiment score, there's a little bit of detail there that's worth perhaps unpicking a little bit more. One of the things that when we first went through the survey was quite surprising was that management confidence seemed to be a little bit lower still than 2019. And, you know, with a more benign uh, macro picture as we've come into 2020 with a geopolitical back, drop that is not as fraught as 2019 that sort of seemed a little bit surprising. I think perhaps when we stop and think about it maybe it isn't because the management teams tend to be quite backward looking in their thinking. That said if you then look forward and take the survey as a whole when you start looking at questions like which management teams, how many management teams are expecting to grow capex, to spend more this year, to grow headcount. Actually, I think that perhaps management teams are, whilst not Jumping for joy are accepting that this is a stabilization, and actually they need to just get on and run their businesses as normal
6: and i 'm sure that 's what um, the business leaders wanted to do, but of course, we took this survey in December, and the big thing marty that 's happened since then is the coronavirus starting in China and spreading um, spreading out from there. How are we accounting for that this isn 't the only year where we 've
8: had an exogenous factor that 's kind of jumped in, and I think one of the benefits of the survey. Is we do ask the analysts to look ahead twelve months, and so you know we don't yet know the impact of the coronavirus and how significant it will be. But if indeed it is more short-lived and perhaps you know a quarter or two of, of impact on global growth, I think what we found in prior years is that that
6: the survey tends to kind of normalize itself through events like this. Okay. Well, let, why don't we hear from some of the analysts right now and hear about the regions and the sectors that they cover.
0: My name is Tina Tian. I'm based in Hong Kong. I cover China Internet for the team. The coronavirus impact on China Internet space actually varies. Digital entertainment business generally benefits from the fact that online time spend goes up as people stay home longer. E-commerce and food delivery is more mixed in the near term. The demand is OK, but the bottleneck is from logistics because of the quarantine, labor shortage, and transportation disruption. Median-term, however, we believe this incident could accelerate the online penetration of these services. The two sectors that actually get hit include advertising and also online travel agencies. However, we'd like to look beyond the short-term volatilities and really focus on the medium-term and long-term outlook of the companies that we like.
3: Hi, I'm Emma Newey. I am the U.S. School Analyst. I think all trends show that we're still at peak biotech funding. Clinical research organisations who run clinical trials for pharma companies and some of the companies that are kind of derivatives of pharma are all doing really well because of this huge investment that's gone into biotech. China has also had huge investment which is flowing through to the rest of the world. There have also been quite a lot of M&A with really healthy premiums like 100% premiums of small biotechs where big companies are buying them so in that respect investors are seeing potential for good rewards.
6: Marty, healthcare shows as the highest scoring sector on the survey sentiment indicator for a second year. And we've just heard Emma referring there to robust M&A in that sector it really seems that activity is picking up in the US.
8: Yeah, and this is a theme that we've seen over the last few years, which is in this low rate environment, companies particularly in the US where animal spirits are probably a little bit more lively, are much more willing to to use their balance sheets to either pay dividends, uh buy back stock, but as as we just heard, you know, think about engaging in more M&A. What I find interesting from the survey, however, is that the analysts are projecting that balance sheets are still in a pretty good spot, and and will remain so over the next twelve months. So it's not foolhardy. It's not, and I think you know, healthcare is a great example of that, where we have seen companies engage in M and A, but there's reasonable synergy that comes alongside that, and so you know, this year we're actually expecting a bit of deleveraging in healthcare as companies execute on some of those synergies.
6: Uh, now, not all sectors are performing quite as well as healthcare. But um, again, uh, coming back to the overall picture, a recession seems uh, some way off.
8: Yes. And and again, I think clearly the low rate environment is helping. But companies do seem to be mindful of their balance sheets. and, And yes, animal spirits are alive, but we don't see anything too crazy and too
6: egregious. Fiona, what are your analysts telling you?
7: Well, I think China is a particularly interesting one. One of the conclusions from the survey is that the corporate performance in China um, looked like it was moderating, but at a much slower clip than last year. And in fact, our analysts were, or as they filled in the survey, they report that company management teams believe that further policy direction by the Chinese authorities beyond intervention to mitigate uh, coronavirus will help cushion a decline in economic activity.
6: Let's take that a little bit deeper then, actually, because if we look at the company sectors, we saw a recession in global manufacturing last year with uh, investments and trade volumes all taking a hit. George um, what does the survey tell us about where the support for the global economy will come from in the year ahead? We asked the analysts what stage of the cycle is your sector
5: currently in and for instance this year there's quite a large disparity between some sectors such as staples and IT healthcare as we've mentioned before looking relatively strong and there are sectors such as energy materials and industrials where I think 50% of industrials analysts say their sector is in slowdown at the moment and that number jumps to around 70% for energy and materials analysts. We asked the analysts the same question, but what stage of the cycle will are set to be in in 12 months' time? And for instance, in industrials, it's quite an interesting result that 32% of our analysts, our industrials analysts, think that in 12 months' time, their sector is going to be in the initial phase of expansion. And that's a jump from only 13% at the moment, so almost three times as many analysts. So it does look like, and obviously this is with a coronavirus caveat, that manufacturing is starting to, to pick up. The green shoots, the fabled green shoots, Marty? There is a balance here.
8: One of the interesting things that I think came out of the survey, which wasn't that interesting, was CapEx, where analysts were kind of ho-hum about, you know, what are the capital expansion plans for companies? And it wasn't that much change from last year. Again, cycle what cycle? And, uh, you know, just sort of thinking through, are management teams willing to invest, you know, in this kind of still uncertain environment? So yes, we're seeing, you know, a a potential manufacturing recovery. But again, kind of looking through the cycle, I I still think there's some perplexity, if you will, as to whether that's going to really take
6: hold. Time to hear from two more of our analysts.
4: My name is Mike Dolan, and I cover global chemicals and uh, global paper and packaging. I I think we're, we're at the point where, you know, after a slowdown very much through the second half of 2019 we may well have reached a level so we, we could actually find ourselves through 2020 in some kind of early expansionary phase. Commodity chemicals will likely be at trough conditions uh, in the year ahead and pros- possibly beyond that while specialty chemical producers may be past the worst as we go into to 2020 and certainly towards the second half of 2020. Key industrial end segments like autos and construction you know are hugely important so if they're doing better then chemical suppliers will be doing better. I'm
2: Cornelia Fers and I'm the US Cap Goods Analyst. So for 2020 I anticipate that certainly in the first half of the year we'll see a contraction in industrial activity but I expect that to be shallow, not a trigger for any kind of overarching recession. And that's something that the companies recognize and looking into 2020, they're expecting certainly sales to fall, but looking to offset that with some kind of cost cutting. And then towards the back half of 2020 that we'll see some sort of recovery. Um, So what we're seeing is that Asia tends to move first, then Europe follows and finally the US. So in the US, we're certainly in contraction. In Europe, we've seen some kind of stabilization.
6: Fiona, now the consumer was the tailwind story of 2019. So do you think that what we're seeing from across all of the the analysts is that there's going to be a rotation into manufacturing in 2020?
7: Yeah, I think the survey uh, certainly suggests that. Um, We've been bumping along the bottom now for a number of months, picture not getting any worse, if anything, a touch uh, better. And we entered 2020 with a strong um, employment picture which supports wages and consumer. We had the abatement of the global tensions and a backdrop of 2019 being a difficult year. And as we've come into 2020, you know, we've already had um, some corporate earnings. Some of the industrials companies were reporting Q1 results that were showing some good news. Despite ongoing weaknesses in some of the short cycle uh Areas um, management commentaries, when you dig into the details, suggest that there has been some kind of stabilisation sequentially, uh, with January on the same level as December, and it sounds like December itself was marginally better than the, than the quarter average. And I would highlight that most notably, there were clearly some positive signs in China, which was only down just in negative territory in the quarter. And so it l- really sounds like things were on a or beginning to be on a much firmer footing. Of course, the question in all of our minds now is how fragile were those green shoots? Can they withstand corona? Can we come out the other side of this? And I think only time is going to tell.
6: Okay, well, what we've got at the moment is the the survey results themselves. And one of the most eye-catching results in the survey was about employment. Um, Now, George, there was a big jump in the number of companies where our analysts expect an increase in staff. Can you take us through those figures?
5: Certainly. One of the questions that we ask the analysts every year is how many companies in your coverage do you expect to increase headcount in the year ahead? And for the last four years or so, that has been roughly averaging around 24 to 28%. And this year, we saw the global average jump to 37% of companies in analyst coverage are going to increase headcount. So quite a significant jump from the years before. And this is a very broad-based result across all sectors and regions.
6: I don't know if it's me, but I find that pretty surprising, Fiona, because if you look at the US, for example, you've got record low unemployment. um, You know, it really feels a strange time for headcount to be expanding.
7: The headline seems surprising, but actually when you think about it, maybe it does actually make a lot more sense than you might initially think. You know, we're talking about companies, we've already said, where it's a year of keeping going rather it's not the end of anything but it's also not you know the start of necessarily anything huge but you know businesses need to continue and I think um It should be no surprise that there is headcount being added in certain areas. So if we think about consumer, for example, it makes sense that companies are adding heads in areas uh, to support e-commerce, for example, uh, in both developed and emerging markets. Um, If you think about, I'm sure one of the other topics we're going to touch on is, you know, the push uh, towards being greener in what we do so if you think about utility companies perhaps you know adding heads in areas of renewables so I think actually when you unpick it it makes a lot more sense than the headline might suggest.
6: Okay well we're going to hear from two more analysts now the first one shows how it's not just the coronavirus that affects business headcount expansion because we're talking about that at the moment can come from all sorts of developments.
2: My name is Geetha Ball, I cover the food and beverage, uh, gaming, leisure and airport sectors. We expect headcount to increase in the uh, global protein companies mainly due to the impact of African swine fever in China that has reduced global supply of protein and it has also led to a tremendous demand for exports from places like Brazil into um, Asia. In order to to satisfy that demand growth, factories will will need to add headcount. African swine fever is nearly 100% fatal to to pigs. Historically, China has been roughly 50% of global demand for pork and um, 50% of global supply of pork as well. I am estimating that the, the Chinese will cull up to 50% of their herd. So what you're looking at is 25% of global pork production goes out of the market, and that will have a, a tremendous impact on global protein supply in general. I've seen estimates of 8%, I think it could even be higher than that, of a reduction in global protein supplies this year.
5: My name's Mike Morey, and I cover IT services and software predominantly in Europe. Based on the view that I think that the environment will still be quite strong, I expect headcount to go up quite considerably, and I would expect that also to be at the IT departments of companies, as well as at the IT companies themselves. You've got these underlying drivers that every single company wants to invest in digital, they're thinking about digital as a new competitive advantage, You have this shift from an environment where you run your own data centres and you're now looking to outsource them
6: both to third parties and as well um, into the cloud. So that's the picture on Headcount. George, what about inflation? What's the survey telling us there?
5: Well, really what we're seeing this year is that inflation concerns have moderated somewhat from last year. I wouldn't say they've completely gone away, but certainly they've taken a step down. For instance, one of the questions we asked the analysts, is cost inflation going to be a problem? And the number of analysts who are saying that cost inflation will not be a problem because prices will remain stable, or in fact fall, has grown by about 50% this year. That's a, that's a big jump. And it's to almost two-thirds, is that right? That's right, 59%. And the number of analysts who say that cost increases are the reason for returns on capital declining this year has fallen from 22% last year to only 6% this year. Okay, so that sounds pretty benign, but Marty, there's a, a hidden risk here. Whether inflation rears its head is one of the biggest questions out
8: there in in sort of the macro environment. And I think if we're relying on our analyst survey and from a bottom-up perspective, the team is saying, yes, it's there, but it doesn't look like it's going to be too much of an issue this year. It actually is a very nice counterbalancing uh, effect to this, this broader concern that,
6: you know, inflation could start to creep in. Okay, well, let's move on to ESG now, environmental, social and governance issues. These are themes that are related to uh, sustainability and corporate governance. So, um, George, back to you again. What are the analysts telling us?
5: We have seen a very significant jump in analysts reporting that their companies are increasing their communication and implementation of ESG policies this year. I mean a really big jump wasn't it? It's it's across the board. That's right. It's across all regions and sectors and even in regions such as North America or Asia where perhaps we'd seen ESG focus stall for the last couple of years and now it's seen another big jump. So Fiona, does that tally with what you're seeing?
7: Absolutely. We were already very used to European companies uh, talking very actively about ESG issues, particularly the G. Uh, I think the focus has moved more now onto the E and the S. Um, But also what comes through the survey is, is not just that other regions like the US and China are catching up, but the pace with which they're catching up.
3: My name is Matthew Phillips and I cover utilities and specifically European utilities. So for me, the next 12 months in particular is very much a period of change for these companies. As we know, with these net zero targets coming in set both by governments and industries, um, this requires utility sector in particular to go through a huge structural shift. So it's now impossible without fail every single management meeting I have or every single analyst call I listen to ESG is mentioned and is one of the dominating factors compared to a few years ago just shows how ESG would have been sporadically mentioned it may have been sort of an offhand comment of oh we're investing in this happens to be investing in this offshore wind farm whereas now it really dominates the conversation.
1: Paul Gooden covering US energy. ESG is definitely becoming more important for U.S. energy companies, I would say from a relatively low base, and certainly I think it's less important than it is for uh, European energy companies. But certainly when we visit companies in pretty much every meeting, we're having conversations around ESG. And when we say ESG, it's really about the E. I would say they all talk a good game on ESG, but what often they don't seem to recognise is the starting position that they're in some of these companies the starting positions are so bad that making small incremental changes is not really what we're looking for we need something much more kind of uh, grandiose than that
6: right fiona paul they talking about an increased emphasis on esg in north america and perhaps surprisingly or perhaps not the the energy companies now you've just come back from a trip to, to houston what did you see there yourself
7: over 30 companies, uh, and, and we talked to the management teams of those 30 companies. And and energy it was companies. Energy companies, and it was, it was really striking just how many of them wanted to engage with us on ESG. And what's particularly important is the fact that it's, it wasn't just us asking ESG questions. They wanted to talk to us. They wanted to ask us, as they start thinking about increasing their ESG disclosure, they wanted to engage with us on the topics that, from our point of view, matter.
6: And that was a marked change on previous visits?
7: It was a marked change on previous visits and also, you know, the management teams themselves also highlighted that the number of questions they're taking is a marked increase versus just six months ago. So, there was one management team in particular who highlighted a conference that they had been at in March of 2019 where they said, you know, maybe they got one-sixth of investors asking them about ESG-related issues. By September, in another conference that they attended, about a third of the investor base were asking ESG questions. And that goes back to my earlier point. It's not just the change, it's just not just the increase, but it's the pace of that increase in interest in ESG-related topics.
6: And, and Marty, that's the motivation, is it? The push, the pressure from, from investors? It, it's huge. And picking up
8: on exactly what Fiona just said, I often get asked, being American myself, you know, will ESG kind of take hold in, in the U.S. given what the administration's policies are? And I think it's coming from the ground up here. Um, what we're seeing is companies themselves who are driving this change and asset owners and asset managers driving this change. And so despite the best efforts of of the government uh, in the U.S., I, I think we're going to see ESG becoming much more pervasive globally. You know, we're seeing the same thing in China, where 18 months ago, we'd go into Shanghai and talk to our analysts there, and they'd say, ESG, you're kidding me. And now, you know, it's front and center to what, you know, the onshore analysts are focusing on. So... The, the, the drives are coming from all
6: around us, and that's one of the things that clearly came through in the in mm-hmm. the survey. Okay, so cycle what cycle is the title of this year's um, survey? The other titles that we were playing with uh, before we decided on that were slowing but still going, the great escape, peril and promise. Um, how would you sum up the year ahead, George? Let me come to you first. The twilight zone. Nice. <laughs> that, that doesn't fool me with uh, with confidence, but
5: well, it, it sort of feels that we are. Not necessarily stuck, and maybe that's a slightly too negative, but things are sort of carry on going for now. The managements are relatively cautious, but headcounts going up, capex is fairly strong, dividends are still are still there, so it's a slight imbalance, let's say, between some of those things, but for now, no recession. Fiona
7: I think peril and promise is a good one. I think you know we came into this year with a lot of promise um for h one being the trough and for things looking a little bit better in H2 and certainly a stronger exit to the year. Of course overarching all of this now is the question mark about the coronavirus. How long it's going to continue, how widespread uh, it's going to be and how much of an impact is there going to be not just to China and China's GDP but to global GDP. But I think it's a bit more than that because I think we would fully expect that China will do something in terms of stimulus. So we may still have a year of promise. It may just be a bit more back-end loaded than we perhaps first so thought. So a
6: short, sharp shock now, but then some help coming in, perhaps. Marty, what are your final thoughts? I, I think it's it
8: really brings in you know the power of the analyst survey, which corroborates the power of central banks, and we are in an environment where rates are low. We think they'll remain low, central banks have no alternative than to continue to inject liquidity into the system. And what you're seeing is the analysts who are talking to companies every day, picking up on that and seeing how management teams react. So
6: it's still all about central banks. And with that, that's the end of this year's Analyst Survey podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. If you want to read more detail about the survey, you can find it all online at fidelityinstitutional.com. Thank you very much to my guests, Fiona O'Neill, Marty Dropkin and George Watson. And thank you to all our analysts who contributed to this podcast. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark. Goodbye.